And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the, exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, still ha uh, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you do not hold back on telling us what we need to hear. And I ask that you would give uh, Albert and I wisdom in sharing your word, that we would not shy away from sharing any part of the gospel, that it is sometimes hard to hear, but there is great comfort in knowing that you have overcome the world and that you're asking us to be conquerors with you, God. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So this first church this morning, I hope you all have a bulletin there. Um, this outline is not in there, but you'll actually see that. You can take some notes. Um, at the outset, I'm going to be brief on the history of Thyatira. That's what we're actually studying here, this, this church. It was similar to Pergamum, which we actually discussed last week, in that both were compromising doctrinally with error, and they weren't confronting sin. 
What was beginning to happen in Pergamum was something that was defining the church in Thyatira as well. The idolatry and the immorality that we see in Pergamum by the church body was being taught by the leadership, by this Jezebel we have here, specifically a woman that had assumed authority in the church in Thyatira. So to get a little context on this church in Thyatira, Thyatira was a gateway city to Pergamum. As Pergamum was this big city, Thyatira acted as this buffer and a shield before the enemies could actually get to Pergamum. Right? During the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, uh, Thyatira became a commercial city, known for its wool and its purple dye and dyeing cloth, big on textiles. The commercial trade for textiles gathered people together to form what we call guilds, or what we now consider trade unions. And these trade unions got together. And the unique thing about these trade unions, or these, these guilds, or these people, these guilds each had its own god. If you were in a guild, you worshipped that guild's god. To top it off, that guild had other activities. We find it had sacrifices, feasts, immoral orgies, things like that, that went along with this guild. If you wanted to be a member in good standing in this particular guild, you uh, participated in whatever those activities were. Otherwise, you would reap the consequences of not participating. Now, other than Revelation, what we know about the city of Thyatira, let's see here, Leave those up there for a second. Other than Revelation, what we know about the city of Thyatira is from Acts, chap chapter 16. So if you could turn with me in your Bible to Acts, chapter 16. Some of you may remember this woman named Lydia. And somewhere, chapter 16, verse 11, the book says this. This is a section on the conversion of Lydia, this woman. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. From there, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a name, woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see here that Lydia was a seller of purple goods. My favorite color, most likely on a business trip in Philippi, when she heard Paul preach the gospel and she was converted. She returns home along with her household after getting baptized and they start the church in Thyatira. Now one of the things to remember is the book of Revelation is written in about 95, 96 AD. The book of Acts in this time is written a lot earlier, maybe 40, 50 years before that time. So this church has been around a while. Last week we looked at Pergamum 
We saw a church that was unfaithful in that it refused to call out or discipline the people in the church that were believing. You could be wed to the world and its practices and still be a follower of Christ. So they taught this tolerance, and that's where we get this, this is the tolerant church. Of the, they thought you could be tolerant of the sexual immorality and the idolatry. And this week in Thyatira, we'll see that the love in the church, there is love in this church in Thyatira, so they are doing loving things. But without holiness or without un, with unrepentant sin, it eventually descends into immorality. Our aim this morning is to see that you could be a very loving church by the world's standards. But if you don't have the holiness, if you're not willing to confront the sin and false teaching, the children, the, the church will descend into immorality. So go back to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll start from there. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the first thing that we want to do is we want to figure out how is Christ identified. And Christ is identified by three things in this passage. He's identified as the Son of God, the one who, and then he has the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and he also is one that has feet like burnished bronze. It's right there in the text, not rocket science. And these descriptions actually come from chapter 1 in verse 11. So you can just turn back there. He says this, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to, to Ephesus. And then he actually describes what Jesus is like. So he's taking those things and he's highlighting aspects that describe and that highlight this particular church and what this church needs. So let's just talk about those things. First, the Son of God. We notice that Jesus is no longer called the Son of Man here. He's actually described as the Son of God. So this emphasizes his divine power and his deity. The Son of Man, whereas sort of emphasizes his sympathy with humanity. But in the church in Thyatira, he is presented as the judge, not as the man who understands, but as the son of God. This particular section to Thyatira is a very harsh uh, letter. And then he also describes him with eyes like a flame of fire, meaning he can, he can see through all the flaws of the church, even though they have faith, love, service, patient endurance, or perseverance that look good to the outside world, Christ can see right through that. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, you don't actually have to uh, go there, but in Jesus' second coming, his eyes are described as a flame of fire, and he consumes everything. His eyes are, are like, like fire that peel back all the things people see to really see the real motives and the heart and the sin that is in the church. And then he describes his feet like burnished bronze. This is, a, this is an image of judgment. His feet are ready to trample on the sin and the sinner. Revelation 19.15 describes that Jesus is treading the winepress of the fear, fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So here comes Jesus in trampling judgment. 
I want to be sure that as, as we look at Thyatira this morning, that we take time to learn about what does this teach us about Christ, about who he is. So the question is, what do we learn about how Christ is identified? What do we learn about him? Well, we learn that he's the one that's going to judge the church. And we learn that he sees not just what the world sees in our various ministries, but he, he sees our motives, right, in doing things in the first place. We also see uh, Christ not delegating judgment, but he will actually come to judge himself. Let's look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This next section is on the evaluation. What is Christ saying about the condition of Thyatira? What sort of compliment is he going to be giving these people in this church? In the past, there have been some slight compliments. Last week, we had something, right? And this week, what does he say? And I'm going to break this section, sort of this evaluation, into two separate sections, similar to what I did last week. There's a commendation, some things they're doing well, and then there's a concern. What are they not doing well? So the first section is verse 19, which I just read. So in his omniscience, Jesus commends them for four things. He commends them for their love, for their faith, their service, and their patient endurance or their perseverance in some other translations. So he says, you're a caring people. I mean, you really show acts of love. And, and I know that the world should actually know us by our love. But this love was just an all sort of happy, slappy type of love, was just encouraging. It's not what actually love should be. Love should not only be encouraging, but it should also be honest and real, and that actually, as Scripture says, we need to actually, um, when we are actually confronting someone, we do it with love, so that someone knows that we're desiring to restore a brother, not just encourage you and not tell you the truth. So they're a, they're a caring people, right? But they're not actually sharing the truth, so they're not really loving. And then you have faith. He says you're consistent and you're dependable. You show up, right? This is sometimes the hallmark of a very attender, sense, uh, attender church. Lots of people that show up and do things. And much like his encouragement, he says in verse 25, to hold fast, he commends them for their dependability. You guys are great. You show up. We have an event. You show up. And then he talks about two things that as a result of his, their, their love and faith. He talks about their service. Your love is producing service. It's you are taking action on that love. You're not just love for the sake of love. You're actually doing something about it. So if there's a need in the church, you're actually doing something. And when he talks about the patient endurance, he's saying your faith is producing perseverance. You're able to hang in there even during difficult times. The question is, what do we learn about Christ from this encouragement or this commendation? Well, we learn that Christ values this faith, love, service, perseverance in the church. But he doesn't want to see those things without sound doctrine to go with it without Christ as the basis for why we do things. I know Rod says, Rod says this, our orthodoxy should inform our orthopraxy. Well, sort of in 
non-theological terms, our doctrine needs to inform our practice, right? The world should see our love, our faith, our service, and perseverance because of our Savior and who he is and what he's done. But now let's transition to the concern that Christ has for the church. So there is something that he's actually worried about or concerned about, and that's what he's going to share with them. There are three identified groups of people, right? So there are things, three groups that he's going to call out. One of them is an individual and these other people that are involved in the church. So the first one is Jezebel. Before we get to that, I just want to ask a good question. How do we get to the point in some church, you know, it's somebody inside the church that's doing this sexual immorality. How did this church get to this place? You think about that? Someone just doesn't come in and say, hey, sexual immorality should be okay. How did we get there? You know, how depraved is the church that behind closed doors that sexual immorality seems to be okay? Doesn't that seem odd to you? But I've noticed this, that sin in the church often creeps in gradually. Let's use this week's example, right? It would be shocking for someone to come in and tell us at Gateway, hey, I just want to let you know we're going to start receiving as members and leaders of the church men and women who are living the homosexual lifestyle. Just want to let you know that the elders have decided that's what we're going to go with. That would be shocking. But very slowly, over many years, without many people noticing, we decide that we begin to raise the awareness of the plight and the normalcy of the homosexual lifestyle. And these things slowly become a part of what the church values and where it doesn't seem so strange. We have slowly changed what is acceptable until it doesn't seem so shocking at all. Well, the church in Thyatira didn't get to this same place overnight, right? This church was in existence for almost 50 years, and the rationale may have been something like this. You remember I talked about the guilds, and if you weren't a part of a guild, what would happen? You were challenged to make a living. So maybe someone in the leadership of the church would say, hey, we need to, all make, we need to make a living in order to support the church. And if you don't participate in the activities of the guild, you're going to lose your job. And if you lose your job, the support of the church is going to be reduced, and we have a big budget. So why don't you go to those feasts, and you participate? You know, after all, we're not under the law, we're under grace. It's the spirit that God cares about, not the flesh. It's not your material body, which is wicked. It only matters what you do with the spiritual. That's what we really care about. As long as you're committed to Christ and you're worshiping him in spirit, right? what you do with your body doesn't matter. And so you can do both. You can't lose your salvation, so don't give it a second thought. And you won't, and you won't lose your livelihood, and the church will continue to be supported. I'm not saying that's not in scripture. I'm saying, how do we get to this place right, where sexual immorality is okay and permitted in the church? and how fuzzy our thinking begins to get. Well, Jesus says this, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants, 
as bond slaves, that word servants right there, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches we will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So the first people group or person is Je- Jezebel, and she's teaching and seducing the people in the church. She's not from the outside, is a woman on the inside of the church. And this isn't, for those of you who provide a little context, this isn't the same woman hundreds of years later in the Old Testament, but she represents someone. Most likely, I don't know very many people that name their child Jezebel. <laughs> it's possible. But it's really what she represents. She is a Jezebel type of figure. And she's influencing the church into idolatry and immorality. And Jesus calls her out specifically. The church was not tolerating her, but they were allowing her to teach the people. Like the church in Pergamum, they were not taking a stand on doctrine and for Christ's church to be pure. Jezebel also was calling herself a prophetess, meaning she was speaking for God. She was causing them to be disloyal to their master. Jesus calls them my my bondservants or my slaves. That's the term doulos. And their master is Jesus Christ. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament Jezebel, some wonderful stories, but I will tell you about her demise because that's the most interesting part. See, the Old Testament Jezebel had set up temples to Baal everywhere. D.G. Barnhouse, Donald Gray Barnhouse says this. He says that wicked priests of Baal were despicable sex perverts. That's how he describes them. But see, back in 2 Kings 9, the Lord had had enough of Jezebel. And what he does is he shoves her, someone shoves her out of a window, and she gets eaten by dogs. If you want to look at that in your spare time in 2 Kings 9, you couldn't get much worse than getting eaten by a dog. So Jesus compares this Jezebel in Revelation with the offenses of the Jezebel in the Old Testament and says she is basically the lowest scum of the earth. And the amazing thing that I find in here is verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus has withheld his judgment from her for a period of time, but she has actively refused the rebuke of Christ. This is not sort of a passive You know, I have not paid attention. Some things have happened to me that are kind of circumstantial. This is an active hardening of her heart. She is committing adultery on a bed, so Jesus sort of uses that bed analogy and states he's going to throw her onto a deathbed. This is severe judgment. And the next group are the Christians. There are Christians in the church committing adultery with her. I don't know if it's more shocking that there were Christians involved in this. Jesus calls them his his servants, his bond slaves. Christ says this group also is going to be thrown out on a sickbed unless they repent. And this is sort of a bed of illness and tribulation. It's going to get bad. 
unless they repent and stop committing adultery with this Jezebel. They're going to have a lot of trouble with Christ the judge. And they're going to receive a great chastening. And the last group we have here is what I call second generation Jezebelians. We don't know specifically if it's actual children, but we know that they will be killed. And the immorality and the idolatry has been going on for a long time. Long enough, so this is the second generation of people that have taken, on, taken it on. So what we learn from this last part of the verse, of verse 23, he says this, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And, and this is a reference to Jeremiah 17.10, and I'll read it for you. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Christ judges the ones who are his, and the ones who are not. And he will give to each of you according to your works. His judgment is accurate and is based upon perfect information. Right? It's not, he understands every detail. We're ta not talking about man judging imperfectly, right, with all kinds of mixed motives in there. We're talking about the king of kings judging with righteous judgment. And just can you imagine you're in the city of Thyatira and someone brings this letter to you in your church and has it read? What would you do? Where would you be? Well, you don't have to panic if you're living a righteous life, right? But if you're not, can you imagine the fear of the Lord coming over you, the hair on the back of your neck as you hear this, this letter read? the words of Jesus. Well, verse 24 gives us some hope, some comfort. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Verse 24 calms those who are living righteous lives. He says he doesn't lay on you any other burden. Well, what is the burden that he's laid on us? It actually comes from Acts 15, 28 and 29. The only burden that they have is being a part of this church in Thyatira where all of this sexual immorality and this eating of this food dedicated to idols is a part of the church. And he says, just abstain from those things. Acts 15 says, where this council says to the Gentiles, the only burden to the Gentile believers is that you need to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and to abstain from sexual immorality. That is the burden that they have to actually carry. And so Jesus says, I don't lay on you any other burden than that. Question I have, what are the deep things of Satan? always interesting what are the deep, are they anything like um, the church in Pergamum where he talks about the throne of Satan so the deep things of Satan are the people that are inside the church 
that are proudly announcing that they are involved in the feasts and the festivals and the immorality, which shows just how depraved they really are. They have convinced themselves it's okay to do things. They have lost the shame. Their conscience has been so seared and their lives have been separated so much that they don't have any problem saying, this is something I'm doing. Whether they justify it in terms of their involvement in the guild or what have you. The next thing we talk about is the solution. How does Christ exhort the church in Thyatira? What is he supposed to say? He says first to hold fast. That's an imperative. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now one thing to remember is that believers in a city didn't have multiple options of where to go to a church. There was one church. There was no other church to go to. He was telling them to hold on till he comes to judge the church. He knows that this tolerance of sin in the church is from Satan. And there was one group that he was talking to and he describes them in two different ways. He says there's this group that actually, those who don't hold to the teaching, right? Those people that haven't justified their sin and separated their spirit from the things they do in the body. And then there are those who don't know the deep things of Satan. So there's these other people that don't know the deep things of Satan. Those are the people that are living holy lives and they're not boasting of their participation with satanic rituals. So he's telling those people to hold on and to persevere. So the question I have is what do we learn about Christ in this exhortation? What, what can we see that he's telling us as part of the church? He's saying, well, Christ is coming, I'm coming. And he wants our focus to be on him. That he hasn't missed anything. There is nothing that has slipped past his notice. I don't know if you prayed this week that you know that Christ knows everything that is going on, every small detail and circumstance, and that he sits on the throne still. It doesn't matter. He reigns supreme. And sometimes we need to preach to ourselves that very message in light of circumstances that happen to us. Let's look at verse 26 to 29 as we look and see the evaluation. What does Christ expect from his church? Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. So the first thing he says is to listen and pay attention. This is from verse 29. And then he says, to the, to the ones that are conquerors, to those that are faithful, those that keep my works, who are obedient. It's in a similar pattern to the rest of the churches thus far. Christ says to the true Christian, to the believer, there were actually true believers in this church, no matter what was going on, to the one who is faithful and obedient to the end, this is what I have in store for you. This is your reward. 
There are three things that Christ promises. The first one is authority. Authority over the nations is an earthly kingdom. And the second is you will rule over them, people, in a, in a, on a throne next to me. And the last thing he says, I will give you myself, the bright morning star. So the authority, this earthly kingdom, Jesus paraphrases Psalm 2, 7 and 9, where he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he says, I will give you authority, earthly authority over these people in an earthly kingdom. And I will actually have you rule over the nations that war against Christ. The nations are those that fight against Christ, the rebel nations, the ones that attack the flock. And the conquerors will be ruling with Christ to protect the people in the kingdom. Amazingly, this also talks about this later on in chapter 19, verse 15. He describes the same rod of iron that he's going to rule with. And then lastly, the conquerors will be given this morning star. If you want to just flip to the back of the chapter, chapter 22 of Revelation, this is Jesus describing himself as this morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says, even if you are in the church that tolerates sin, if you hold fast, I will give you myself. I will give you the morning star and you will reign with me. So in this, what do we learn about Christ? That he will rule one day in an earthly kingdom and we will share the rule with the faithful. Most of all, that God has given Jesus to the church. Just a, something to conclude this section, or this, this time. The letter to the church in Thyatira is a really sobering message. We can see all kinds of parallels today in our world. Jesus doesn't hold back in the rebuke of their sin, even if the church was unwilling to rebuke them. Jesus doesn't. He's unlike the church in Thyatira, afraid to rebuke because he wants his church to be pure and not stained with the, with the sin of the world. He calls out the Jezebel and he calls out the Christians too who are participating in the sin with her. And his challenge to them is to love with holiness, a willingness to confront sin and false teaching in the church so that the, the church will be noticeably different from the world. Now this letter serves as a warning to us as well. In my concluding thoughts, this is the question that I have. How can I safeguard against how I might unknowingly tolerate a Jezebel? Whether that's in the church at Gateway or some other Christian that I know. Two things. We need to stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You need to be in your word. You need to be in your Bible. 
And then lastly, you need to beware of listening to only one person as a sole source, right? Second Peter 1.20 talks about, let's use the word in scripture as Bereans. Doesn't actually, I'm not talking about Bereans in that passage, but we need to be Bereans and ask how this relates to scripture. Jesus promises in Revelation 22.7, he promises this, and behold, I am coming soon. That is a promise that we can bank on. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we acknowledge you as king. Your son will reign and is reigning over all of these things that are going on in our life, God. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't tolerate a Jezebel in our lives, that we would have our word open, that we would be seeing the world through the lens of scripture, and that we would lean heavily on you in everything that we say and how we speak to our family about the news of the day, God. May we always acknowledge that you are Lord of the universe and that you are not moved and you are not shaken or disturbed by the news of the day. God, we have more churches to go through and we take comfort in you. You will not be moved, God. We thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your church. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Matt. <clears throat> well, I don't know that um, as we continue to go through Revelation, and we're not, not obviously looking at uh, something that's better necessarily uh, in this next church, and in fact, um, I think in many ways, as uh, some of you have already mentioned to me, that uh, this is sort of a heavy week in terms of looking at these churches. And so uh, we'll continue to take a look at the next church that is here, I'm hoping I move this the right way. So we're going to take a look at the church that is in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read through this, and you can follow along. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. <laughs> Talking about a situation that seems rather bleak, right? Um, this is commonly known as the church that is dead. 
And when you just think about that phrase, a church that is dead, uh, it makes me just kind of wonder a little bit about, you know, if you're receiving this, how do you receive it? The church that is dead. It was a church that was supposed to have Christians in it. Francis Schaeffer has stated that um, the meaning of the word Christian has been reduced to practically nothing because the word Christian as a symbol has been made to mean so little. It has come to mean everything and nothing. And I think that uh, today we probably see that happening, right? Right before our very eyes. Maybe this past week's decision from the Supreme Court has you feeling the same way, feeling outnumbered. And I think for all of us that have been aware of the moral decay around us, we're not at all surprised by the ruling on Friday. It has been in our lifetime that we have witnessed non-biblical moral standards that have become acceptable, celebrated, and now they are protected by the law. And I suppose the question many of us are asking is, you know, what do we do as Christians? I recently heard the results of a study that talked about Christians in the United States. And for the first time in the history of this nation, the number of self-identified Christians is down to nearly two-thirds of the population. Right now, it's about 70.6% is what they said. And for us as a country, this is a new low. But my question is this. If we have so many Christians in our country, and who knows how many churches we have here, how have we moved so far from the gospel in such a short time? And I think it's just like Francis Schaeffer has said, though, and that is that, once again, you know what? The, Christian, the word Christian has come to mean a variety of different things. I'll move right here into, I want to just kind of share with you something about um, a story that happened here in the Bay Area. In 1920, there was a lady who uh, donated a large amount of money to build a new church in a city that was known for licentiousness and violence, yet filled with charm from an aesthetic point of view. Yes, it was one of our neighboring cities, what we're talking about here. The mainline Protestant church was built in two years and then was given a pastor to shepherd the flock. The gospel was declared and the symbol of the cross was openly displayed, and the church quickly grew to about 800. In the late 1950s, the church was given a large endowment, though, and when a new pastor was hired in 1962, the pastor spent the first year observing and studying the city. And at the end of his first year, he landed on two things that would change the church. The first one was that, you know what, there was a paucity of new ideas available to the church on how to minister to the city. And secondly, he said new structures and models were needed for missions, uh, for a new mission for the church. And so they wanted to move the church then to now to be a church of operation. And so the idea was, let's go about doing things now. That's what's important. Here's the city in front of us. We need to do things for people. Well, eventually, they would take down the cross from their church. It was because they said the cross is oppressive. And in fact, the leadership of the church 
said that it was key to transforming their worship. But they kept the liturgy. They welcomed all people of faith, faith, and that included atheists, whose faith is declared valid in their open and accepting church. Well, on Friday, this church also celebrated this momentous new legalization of sinful behavior. Perhaps the quote that best sums all of this up that was given by their high-profile pastor was this. The church keeps trying to tell us that the cross is here to save humanity. But the truth is, only humanity can save the cross. What a tragedy. Self-proclaimed Christians engaged in worldly affairs that has led to another dead church very close by to us. And there are many others. And so as we take a look at this church, this is the same thing. This is exactly what Christ was talking about. We're going to take a look first here, and um, our outline is pretty familiar. Um, you've already seen it a few times. And um, it begins with the one who was speaking through John, and that's Jesus. And remember that when Jesus speaks to John, to write to the angel of the church in Sardis. He's speaking to the leader or the elder, the pastor of the church. And uh, he is to read this entire letter called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, as it says. So it is very likely that the same letter had been taken first to Ephesus and read by the angel for that city, which means messenger from God. So it was read to the congregation in Ephesus. Then that elder or leader messenger stayed at his church, and then the remaining six moved to the next church in Smyrna. And then five moved to Pergamum, and then four to Thyatira, and now there are three in Sardis. And in this particular letter to the church of Sardis, Jesus describes himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so far... In each of the descriptions of the writer or the correspondent here, to the previous four churches at least, they come out of the vision that is in chapter 1, specifically the vision of the glorified Christ. And you can see that in verses 11 and following. However, in this case, that vision has to also share with a component that is found earlier in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 4, where we find, it says there, grace to you, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that designation, of course, refers to the Holy Spirit. And so for the first time, we're kind of seeing the introduction here of the Holy Spirit into these churches and the importance here that goes with that. In fact, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, as I just mentioned, and then also in the following verses, the same standard for interpretation which describes the seven stars so in ver is used here. So in verses 11, 16, and 20 of chapter 1, we understand that the seven stars are the seven messengers, the seven shepherds, pastors, elders, leaders of the seven churches. Verse 20, in fact, says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, for the term seven spirits, this may be a bit confusing here. 
But as I already stated, this is the first description that is not just describing Christ as the eternal, glorious, conquering, and returning judge and savior. Jesus is described here with the third member of the Trinity. In fact, Christ says, who has the seven spirits of God. So this mention of the Trinity reflects the fact that there is but one God. But in unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons. The same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. In fact, here at Gateway Bible Church, our doctrinal statement of the Holy Spirit declares, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal in essence and deity with the Father and the Son, who is continuously active in creation, salvation, sanctification, illumination, and intercession, gifting the early church with authenticating sign gifts and ongoing equipping gifts for ministry. And so what we see here is this merging together that the Holy Spirit is working in Christ's church. As for the seven spirits of God in Isaiah 11, we have a prophetic passage of the Messiah who is described as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The prophecy of Jesus in verse 2 of chapter 11 tells us this, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this refers to the Holy Spirit, and then it begins to identify seven works of the Holy Spirit that would take place in Jesus. And it says here, shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if you were to continue to read in verses 3 through 5, you would find in those verses a description of Jesus, the same Jesus that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And so there's this, this opportunity here for us to see what is it that the work of the Holy Spirit does. If a church is dead, is the Holy Spirit working? These are the things that the Holy Spirit should be bringing about in a church. Zechariah 4.6 is a familiar passage. We see the description of the work of the Holy Spirit. The description is focused on the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit. It says there, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is the way he moves in his church. It's not through programs. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that is what is allowing for Gateway to exist, to be alive. Well, ultimately, this description of the Holy Spirit reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit, the one who represents Christ in the church. So in verse 1, when Christ is saying, that he is the one who has authored this letter. And he is saying that he is doing this through the Holy Spirit and through godly shepherds, godly leaders, godly messengers, godly pastors. And this is how he wants to work in his church. It allows us to see very clearly the way the church needs to function. Well, 
And moving to the evaluation and the condition of the church in Sardis, I'll give you just a second to write this down here, but we find that Sardis is dead. It's not the way any church of Jesus Christ should be described by the Lord himself when you think about it. It's one thing for maybe people to say that. We are not omniscient. We don't know all things, but God does. And so when he describes a church this way and referring to the church of Sardis, in one sense, this is a judgment. But as we will see, Christ doesn't even spend time saying what he's going to do to them if they remain, remain dead. You see, you can't penalize the dead, can you? As we have seen in the others already, he has something for them where he says, I will bring something against you. But he is declaring to them that they are dead. Dead is dead. You can't do anything else against them. The Lord says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but guess what? You are dead. He doesn't even commend this church. There isn't anything here to commend them for. And usually he has some nice things to say about them before he sort of launches into his letter. But here, no. He jumps right into the condemnation. This church was contaminated with the world. This church was defiled and sinful. This church was characterized by inward decay, spiritual disintegration, and dry rot. It was dead like so many churches can be today and are. At one time, this was a baby church that began to grow and had developed into a fledgling church in Asia, and now it was barely left with a pulse of spiritual life from Christ. It was basically populated by unredeemed, unregenerate people that were just plain church. I don't know if you've ever walked into a church like that. I, I can't even imagine what that is like. I've never walked into one like that. But just to think that you have people that are sitting there and just playing church. He says, you have a name that you're alive. You have a superficial reputation, but spiritually, you are dead. I mean, he knows them quite well. He's speaking about them. He's saying that, you know what? I know your works from the past, but guess what? That's just your reputation. It's not what you are today. Jesus is saying, your deeds may be sufficient to give you a reputation before men, but before me, they are deficient. They may be acceptable to the people around you who see them as philanthropic and beneficial and kind and whatever else, but they're not acceptable to me, God says. You're living a lie. What you do is not spiritually, spiritually alive. It's just the pointless, lifeless motion of corpses here that is taking place. And in fact, as we go through this, you know, really, there's very little we know about the origins of the church in Sardis. The town of Sardis was about 50 miles northeast of Ephesus. It was probably founded when Paul was in Ephesus in the early 50s of the first century. The city of Sardis at one time was the capital of the Lydian kingdom and was already, as was already explained last week by Matt, it was a very wealthy area. And even after the collapse of the Lydian kingdom, and while under Roman control, 
it remained wealthy. But of the seven churches, this was the worst. And over time, this church had grown careless and apathetic spiritually. You see, they did have talent, they had resources, and money. All those things to work with. They were well regarded in the community. They had a good name there. There was no persecution from outsiders or pagan religions. Think about that. That's, that's a pretty good setup, isn't it? No opposition. But let's think about it. Why don't they? No opposition from the Jewish community or even from a, apostolic frauds or even the Nicolaitans as we heard about last week. None of them were against them. They didn't have problems with them. How does a church go about being able to be in a place and not have any challenges with these groups? Is it possible? What is the gospel like? The city's long history of riotous living, though, was such a part of the life that it was hard for Christians to resist the predominant culture of their city, and so they just engaged in it. It was still part of them, and they couldn't walk away from it. The church of Sardis was known to the other six churches, by the way, for its vitality in the past. And it was probably a large, growing congregation with many activities that attracted the entire community, but apparently one thing was missing. They didn't preach for the need to be redeemed and justified by the blood of Jesus. It was a, diver a diverse group that could celebrate diversity. Invite everybody in. Hey, you're all welcome. Everybody, join us. But they didn't preach the gospel. How tragic. This one solid church in just 35 to 40 years was now dead. Ephesians 2.1 tells us this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, meaning that deadness is the result of sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, also reiterates how our sin leaves us spiritually dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses. That's what sin does. And here, sin was prevalent. It was now a dead church. A church that was living in the deadness of sin. And these people were unredeemed spiritually. They were dead sinners playing church. Secondly, this congregation needed to be made alive before time for them had expired. And throughout this book, we are reminded that the time is near when Christ will come back because that's the next part of God's unfolding plan. And I'm thankful for that. I hope you are too. But when I just think about the fact that, wow, you know what? He's given them a message here. Time is passing on you guys. And what he is saying to them is that it's time to wake up. The fact of the matter is, we don't know when Christ is going to return, but don't be fooled with believing that you will always have another day. The phrase, wake up, is an urgent call to action and to stay alert. It's wake up! It's not wake up. It's supposed to be jarring. I was thinking back about this, and I, I remember I used to come home. This was probably when Alicia and Joel 
who are now 18, and Joel's just about 16, they were little. It was before they even started school. And I would come home from work, and I was teaching, I was coaching, and I would get home around 6.30 or so, uh, 7 o'clock, and I'd been gone for about 11 hours. And I was just like, okay, you know what, I'm tired. And dinner's just about ready. And I would sit on this recliner that we had, and I loved it. Rebecca, you remember the recliner. She would say, uh, I love these things. But I would just sit there, and just for a few minutes, I just wanted to close my eyes, just to kind of rest a few minutes. And Alicia and Joel were kind of off to the corner, and they were doing their own thing, playing. And uh, like I said, it was before they even started school. And so <laughs> these little preschool bodies would see my eyes start to close. And I remember that I was, you know, just beginning to snooze. It was just at that point where you kind of forget everything, and you're just asleep, seems like. And I would hear in gleeful tandem, wake up, wake up. I think Joel was probably like two years old or something. I don't know, could barely say. Those were two words he could say there right away. And before I could open my eyes, though, before I could open my eyes to see who's yelling at me, wake up, yelling at the top of their lungs at me, there were these hands, these, this head, these shoulders that were crashing into me. They would, these little bodies, they had catapulted themselves right into me. And of course, daddy's indestructible, right? And there I was, being jarred awake by them. Well, they would laugh and run off, waiting for me to close my eyes again, right? But I had been warned. And I knew that if I wanted to preserve my body from two catapulting bodies moving at breakneck speed, I had better wake up and pay attention. You know, Sardis had a much graver situation, though, to pay attention to. In fact, this passage is loaded with great urgency. The church of Sardis was in need of a spiritual transplant, but they didn't know it. Time was of the essence. There was very little time to revive this church. And the question for this church was, who cared enough to do something about their condition? Verse 4 tells us of the last remaining hope that they have to keep the church alive. It says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Only a few remain with unsoiled garments. The testimony of believers to the unbelieving had begun to cease. Think about that. What's your purpose? Last week, Matt mentioned this very point that all too often believers can find themselves compromising and becoming more like the world rather than like Christ. Once walking with Christ and their brothers and sisters in the Lord and now walking with the world. This past week as I was studying this passage and I was thinking about how this compromise happens, I began to think about the fear of the Lord and how it can keep us from compromising. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that is needed in our lives to keep us from following after the world. So I have to ask, where are you in your relationship with Christ? Have you gone beyond the point of receiving Jesus 
as your Lord and Savior? Have you been willing to be counted as a follower of Christ Jesus and willing to renounce the ways you used to live by? By being baptized, by being trained as a disciple of Jesus and making more disciples of Jesus? These are things that we have to consider. Otherwise, we become sleepy and we begin to fade. Only a few with unsoiled garments. Would these be the last believers of Sardis? These few that had not smeared their spiritual garments with sinful character, they were the last testimony of what Christ wanted in his church. The last ones there. Jesus said, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The willingness of these believers to remain sanctified in the presence of unbelievers that filled their church meant that they were, fil- they were fit for the kingdom of God. You see, in Sardis, there was only one church to go to, only one. These believers couldn't just pick up and move to the next church and say, let me go find a better church here. This was it right here. There was no church hopping or shopping. It wasn't an option. These few believers were probably a miserable bunch as they were in the minority and they could see the decay of their church. They probably wanted to leave, but God exhorts them here to be agents of change. So with all the gloomy news of death, what we're going to look at now is that Christ speaks to the church of Sardis in exhortation. His message really is quite simple and is what we might call a revival. A revival for spiritual life to be breathed back into a church that is dead. And so let's take a look at the solution now of how does Christ exhort the church of Sardis? How does he do this? Well, several commands are given to remedy their situation before it was too late. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. So he says, wake up. That's the first thing he exhorts them with. Be watchful. The idea is wake up and prove yourself to be watchful. This was opposite of the Sardian ethos. They had been watchful. They hadn't been watchful about anything. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul addresses the issue of staying alert. And he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Be ready. Then in verse 6, he says, So then let us not sleep, he says, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 8 goes on to say, And having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The command is, be vigilant and ready to battle spiritual darkness. Question, how do we prepare ourselves to stay awake, to be alert? And this is what he tells us to do to allow ourselves to be prepared, to be alert, to be awake. Bottom line, this is a call to reverse the current attitude in Sardis. And the current attitude was to sleep. They were just sort of hanging around in a daze. 
Well, if you want renewal, if you want revival, if you want to pour life into a dead church, then people need to wake up. That's the idea. Be alert. Look at what's happening. Make an evaluation and see where you are. Care and get involved. Secondly, he says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen the things that remain, the few remaining remnants of a strong beginning needed to be reinforced and made stronger. From the passage, we don't know what those things were. But whatever redeeming ministries and people were still in place, they needed to strengthen them. They had the form, but they had lost the function in most other things. And what was dominating the landscape of this church, well, it's really pretty sad, wasn't it? This is why here at Gateway Bible Church, we try to uphold the importance of preaching the Word of God. And we try to sing music that focuses on the grace of God towards man and focuses on the character of God. It's important that preaching does not become sharing or that worship does not become entertainment, that Bible study and home groups don't just become meeting felt needs or that evangelism doesn't become just a social gospel and good works and using words when necessary. And I've heard that used before, that phrase. You know, but if you're going to evangelize, you need to open your mouth and declare the word of the Lord. And that's what we're called to do. Strengthening what remains calls for an intentional plan to be put in place and used here. Third, he says to them, remember what you have received and heard. This is a familiar phrase used in the epistles to describe three basic truths that first century believers needed in their churches. They needed the true gospel. They needed doctrines of the faith. And thirdly, they needed the scriptures. Now, the apostles were given the assignment to deliver these three things to the churches, and as the New Testament scriptures were penned and recorded, these were also then being delivered to the churches. Paul speaks of the Thessalonians who had received the word, that is the gospel, with much tribulation, and the joy of the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Hey, they were receiving this. And he's telling them, remember what you have received and heard. The church of Sardis needed to get back to the basics here. Next, the church of Sardis needed um, to remember to keep it. You know, every generation will need to decide what they're going to keep. In Jude, verses 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Remember that series? Contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. Another word for keep is to obey. The church in Sardis needed to take what they had received and start to obey it. Friends, that's a big responsibility, isn't it? Obey it. Fifth, repent. 
With remorse and sorrow, the church of Sardis needed to turn away from their sinful ways. This is really the beginning. The heart has to be addressed first. I can't help but think of 1 John chapter 8 verses, uh, 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10, where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Boy, I'll tell you what, these words were appropriate. And you know what? They still are for us today because there's still sin that creeps into our lives. And now let me finally move into the last part, which is to contemplate a little bit about what does Christ expect from his church? What is it that he expects from us? First of all, he tells us, you know, it's important for us to stay alert. All believers need to be on guard. And um, Colossians 2, 6 through 8 is an important verse for us to keep in mind here. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And here comes a very important part. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Prepare yourself. Know it. The word of God. Know it. So that you know when you are being fed a philosophy that is contrary to the word of God. If you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, it is your responsibility to grow up in the faith. Gateway has many different opportunities for you to grow, including baptism, membership, small groups for discipleship, home groups as well. You see, you need to be an active participant for declaring the truth. But first, you need to learn the truth of the gospel. Next. Keep your robe of righteousness from being stained. The few believers that were in the church of Sardis were given assurance that they would never lose their salvation. But obviously, some of them had sinned at times. But Jesus says this to them, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What an assurance. But friends, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Keep yourselves as pure and undefiled. Remember that when you begin to compromise, you're no longer keeping only to Christ. You can't serve both God and the world at the same time. You're going to love one more than the other. Lastly, when sin is present, Repent and get back on track right away. He who has an ear, it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is the Holy Spirit that speaks to us and convicts us of sin. And if you're truly a Christian and you know that God is speaking to you about 
some action steps that need to be taken, I plead with you today, do it. Don't wait. You know, a church with Christians that are only Christian in name and not in submission to Christ and the Holy Spirit is beginning to die. We need to live humbly, and we need to see what our condition truly is. And we need to be willing to confess our sins to God and allow him to work freely in our lives and through his church. The truth is that today, Sardis is called Sart, and the city is occupied by herdsmen. There are no Christian families there. There's not even a church. The gospel needed to be declared. Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, as we have had the opportunity to look at these churches and the words that you had to speak to them, we see ourselves today at the same crossroads understanding that we need to be vigilant. We need to be alert. We need to know the truth of your word and not allow ourselves to be saturated by the ways of this world. These are not easy words for us because all too often we desire simply for your love we want to be able to live lives without conflict on our own terms. But Father, for the believer, would you help us? Would you help us to bend our knee to you, to submit ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit who is able to do amazing things in our lives. We ask that uh, you would allow for your word to be able to sink into our hearts and that we would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.